planet is like the ultimate dynamic system to try to model. A lot of smart people modeling. And the reason we're doing this is because we need to direct a lot of money into nature restoration today. We can't wait 30 years and then say, oh, wait, now we realize we have a big, big problem. We should try to direct all the money at once 30 years from now and fix the problem. That's not how trees grow. Ecosystems take time. Generations. Before any world-changing innovation, there was a moment, an event, a realization that sparked the idea. Before It Happened is a show about that idea. I'm Donna Laughlin, and each week I'll take you on a deep dive into a singular light bulb moment that inspired the visionaries to push forward and change our lives. On this podcast, you'll hear from innovators from an array of industries and philosophies who imagine and are still imagining the future. Grab your passport and let's go on a journey together. Our guest Troy Carter dialed into our show from his office in a grove of redwood trees. Birds chirping in the background, the breeze flowing through his long blonde hair, and at times, wind blowing into the microphone. This was a fitting environment for a man of nature who's on a mission to reforest the planet. Troy is co-founder and CEO of Earthshot Labs, a venture-backed startup that works with communities and investors around the world to support large-scale ecological projects. In our interview, we talk about how to create a balanced ecosystem through nature restoration, forest protection, and conservation. From the island of St. Croix to the Pacific Northwest to Hawaii's Waipio Valley, Troy's lived most of his life outdoors, nurturing a love of nature. He's always been guided by a profound respect for the earth and by doing work that has a positive impact. Here's how it happened for Troy. My relationship with the rest of nature has always been a really strong part of my life. So I grew up in the Caribbean on the island of St. Croix. My family moved to Washington State afterward, and then I went to school at Stanford in California and then lived on Hawaii for the last seven years. So there's been, a, I would say, a constant connection with the ocean, with the forest, with the mountains, with wild places. Now I live in the Bay Area near San Francisco in a very beautiful place, you know, in a redwood forest and where we can go walk forever. And the temptation for scheduling, for feeling the stress of not doing enough, for feeling obligated and burdened by such fast-paced life, it's not something that I don't think is necessarily natural to human beings to sustain. So I think this deep-set pacing has kept me sane. So with your passion for nature, how did you ultimately decide to study economics? I think I'm one of the few people that in that major really, really loved economics. I loved understanding a quantitative way of understanding why humans do what they do at scale. Because we can sort of look at individual humans and say, oh, he has a set of values, he has a set of needs, he has to care for his family, etc. And then on mass, over the course of hundreds of millions or billions of people, we make terrible decisions as a civilization to the point where we are destroying ecosystems and where there's mass inequality, where actually needs are not met for humans or non-humans. 
And that's sort of weird. Why did we go down that path rather than take a bit more time to grow through these phases of technology to go where we will ultimately go anyway? So it's a really good question. I don't think I actually answered many of those questions, but I was given a way of thinking and a set of tools to ask and understand the questions better. After Stanford, Troy worked for about a year at Airbnb, but didn't love being in an office. He also wasn't convinced that he was the right match for the company. He then launched a cider business, spending a few years as a scrappy entrepreneur, learning all about starting a company and creating a lifestyle brand. But cider wasn't his dream either. So he took a personal pivot. He moved to Hawaii, and that's where he found his mission. I lived for about seven years on Hawaii with my wife. We hosted retreats on uh, land near Waipio Valley. And that was really off, off grid, off civilization for quite a while. And then I got the impulse again, like, okay, I want to go back into having an impact on the planet because actually what I see is that the humans aren't figuring it out, or at least they're not figuring it out very quickly, or the way they think they're figuring out is not nearly at the depth that organizations that are being formed we think are the best expressions of human wisdom in this time. I just don't see that broadly. And so we needed to go do that. So Rhizome was sort of the first iteration and they're still going well. And it's a really brilliant idea to use bamboo to replace wood and steel and concrete and grow a sustainable timber industry. What challenges do you face with that particular company? The lumber industry is a slow-moving industry. Regulations are slow to change. Any business that requires a lot of money for capital expenditures up front and investment up front with low margins is a hard business to be in. I want to talk about your company and project. You named the company Honoring the First Moon Landing, which I think is personally one of the milestone historical things that I still look at. I still get excited when I see space. And I saw recently the James Webb galaxy images. And I was like, wow, that's like the first time we've seen gemstones in the sky. Let's talk about what inspired you to this next phase. And let's start with first the definition of what is your mission for Earthshot. So little context, I started along with my co-founder, Patrick, an organization called Earthshot Labs. And The name does speak to the sense of inspiration and scale that, for example, sending a rocket up into space, the moonshot, that's hard and it's big and many, many people were involved. And that's the level of scale and inspiration that we need to address the ecological crisis and climate crisis on this planet. That's sort of what the name speaks to for me. And what we do practically is we do nature restoration projects all around the world. And we work with tribes, community groups, governments, NGOs that are doing nature restoration projects. And we get them the money that they need in order to do this project at a much larger scale than we've ever seen before and support them operationally and then connect corporations, governments, philanthropies, and other investors to match with those projects. That's sort of concretely what we do right now. We emerged out of an open source community called the Earthshot Institute. And that's something we also founded. It's now a nonprofit. 
which is an open scientific platform for doing ecological modeling, for understanding how trees grow, how trees grow at scale, how coastal forests work, how to restore waterways and small and large water cycles across landscapes. So the actual scientific collaboration that academia hasn't been so good at fostering, bringing academics from many, many different institutions and then amateur scientists who bring a technical skill set or maybe no skill set at all to contribute to understanding how the planet works so that we can better work with it and better protect and restore ecosystems. So that's sort of the origination of that project. Yeah. So ultimately, you're creating a movement. And so with the investors and the land stewards, you mentioned, and I wanted to ask you about, you mentioned tribes. So indigenous people working with them to understand best practices and curate those into your best practices. That's a great statement. Working with indigenous peoples about best practices. Who's teaching whom? the best practices. I would say mostly it is people who have deep intimacy with their places, teaching global systems best practices for how to steward land. And that we need to take wisdom and incorporate it into how we pay people to steward land, how we give agency over land. This is one of the major changes in the last couple of centuries is, for example, the Brazilian Amazon was essentially divided up into squares and given away with the express intention of colonizing the Amazon. And so that has worked and it's still working today. And I don't think it's a very good idea. And there's a lot of other people that don't think it's a very good idea either. And in order to reverse that impulse or balance it out, we need to give land agency back to peoples who love it and who will be stewarding it for many generations. We've had a, a guest on our show prior, Will Peterfee, who's really involved in pioneer projects and things like that. But I've also had a little bit of familiarity with groups like Earth Justice, Climate Reality, World Economic Forum. Are you elevating this discussion to those types of organizations? Is there a new platform that needs to be elevated to have these discussions? So clearly, environmentalism people already know what it is and we can engage, we can be involved in these social justice, ecological justice movements, climate protesting, like that's a well-trod path. What isn't is systemically changing the way land is treated, the way economics sort of incentivizes different people. The reason we cut down forests is because we pay people to cut down forests and because on a deeper level, we have broken relationship with the rest of nature. Yeah. And if we look at the 20th century, we did some really horrible things. <laughs> and there were debates between preservation and conservation in the forestry and John Muir and Gifford Pinchot and others. It's been a challenge for a long time. And you see some of the clearings that were done and not the replanting. Just in being a native of California, but traveling in all other parts of the world. I remember as a child, my father would took my sisters and I to a lumber mill in Oregon, and I was kind of a little perplexed and a little bit devastated, and I was seven years old, and I thought, all that to get a pencil? I mean, it's what I thought, because I was really young, right? And I think the knowledge and the understanding that you're bringing to the table is so important for us, and not just the investors and, and the stewards, but aren't we all technically should be stewards? Absolutely. Relationship with the rest of nature is not reserved for some people. We are a part of the planet. The planet has created us. We're a relatively new species, and we have a function on the planet. 
So let's take that proper function and run with it. Right now, there has been a very strong investment in the humans, and it's gotten a little bit imbalanced with the other species. And we know what to do now. One of our friends, Paul Hawken, he wrote this great book called Drawdown and, you know, the 100 Solutions to Climate Change. That's a great, easy resource for people to get up to date rather than doom and gloom stories. Okay, the UK hit 40 degrees. That's not what we need to focus on. What we need to focus on is what am I uniquely called to do to have impact on the planet in a positive way and restore relationship by having a visceral love connection with our place. If that's not possible, we will continue to cycle into crises over and over, over the coming hundred years. And it's not necessary. Yeah. I read a job description and when I read it, I go, wow, is this the best job description? And it probably has nothing to do with the content. It says we're on a sacred mission coming from love to restore humanity's relationship with nature while having an amazing time. Who wouldn't want to be part of this movement? How are you recruiting people? Because to me, it would be like, I want to work there. (laughs) Collaborate effort. The truth is that we can't hire everyone. It's a pretty specialized group of people right now. And we've only been hiring people since October. This is a new organization. But it speaks to something in your being of like, yeah, that sounds great. And what is a bit baffling to me is why isn't every job description for every company like that? There's no reason this has to be more radical. So take us in the world. I really want to understand the science parts. So you're using artificial intelligence. How are you using data, machine learning? Describe that to us. So we do a few things at Earthshot. And it is really rooted in the science. We have a team of basically quantitative ecologists, people who have studied forests and study ecological systems, and then incorporate satellite imagery, incorporate data sets from field observations to understand the past and understand current ecological state, and then predict the future under different interventions, different climate scenarios, and understand risks of what will happen to a forest wildfires, drought, floods, different temperature scenarios, the different feedback loops when water cycles are restored or when animals come back. These are very complex, highly dynamic systems. The planet is like the ultimate dynamic system to try to model. A lot of smart people modeling. And the reason we're doing this is because we need to direct a lot of money into nature restoration today. We can't wait 30 years and then say, oh, wait, now we realize we have a big, big problem. We should try to direct all the money at once 30 years from now and fix the problem. That's not how trees grow. Ecosystems take time, generations to restore forests. Behind me, we're sitting in a redwood forest, but these trees are like 50, max 100 years old around us. This is an infant forest, and we don't even realize that it's just an infant forest because they're huge. How many projects have you launched? We have projects that we operate ourselves and have teams in Panama, Peru, and Brazil. And we work with partner projects all around the world. So we have projects in Burkina Faso and Sierra Leone and Madagascar and all over Sub-Saharan Africa, Southeast Asia, and all over Central and South America. 
And this is continuing very quickly. So we are partnering with organizations who are already doing good work on the ground and getting them the money to expand their operations. So when you bring a project on, do you go through a level of schooling or educating? How do you jumpstart a project? It really depends on the level of maturity of the project. If this is just a good idea that someone has, there might be six months, a year, or many years of work to get that project to the point where it can actually go scale up operationally, go plant a bunch of trees, because that may take thousands or tens of thousands of people. It's a lot of work to go do reforestation and not something everyone has experience with. And then if a project is already sort of well-developed and all they need is money, we can do that quite quickly, maybe in a month or two, get them additional financing to go scale up. So from these projects, what collected research or knowledge are you gathering that can be useful in other best practices, like in agriculture or even aerospace or transportation? Are we learning and listening to the earth and taking that information and being able to apply it elsewhere? By being engaged with nature restoration, forest protection, conservation of ecosystems, people are healing their relationship with the other species on the planet and with the planet as a whole. And that will have ramifications for every area of development. And it's not about the specific learnings, how to operationally scale up or how to structure financial deals or how to build neural nets to understand tree segmentation. These are all interesting things. But if we can heal relationship with the whole and each person feels connected, feels belonging on the planet, that will change everything about the way humanity develops over the coming centuries. So a lot of companies are adopting ESG initiatives and the E, an environmental component of it. Is there a juxtaposition at some point where companies becoming more conscious about, you know, the types of products they buy and maybe the place where they operate and conduct businesses. Can you influence that part of that discussion as well? Maybe. Hopefully. One thing that companies can do, we build a product called LandOS, and it's basically a tool for land management. What do you do with land and how do you get paid for doing something good with land? So for any sort of big agricultural company or someone with a big supply chain, we can help you understand what to do because the future will look very different than it does today. Hey there, it's Donna. I want to invite you to go check out some of our past conversations with game changers and innovators who are shaping our future. Like Will Pettifee, who's leading the way on ESG investing working to make it easier for people like us to make a profit by making a difference. This tide shift is occurring and people are going to start being held more accountable for the impact that they have on the planet. And it's no longer acceptable to say, okay, well, I'm doing this, but I'm also creating this mega profit for my shareholders. This movement is not stopping. It's just going to pick up more space and more speed and more momentum and more people. And so for the longevity of your fund or your company, I would suggest getting in front of the wave and taking joy in it. It's fun to change and evolve. I learned something, actually a lot of somethings, every time I talk to a new guest. They're pioneers. They're thought leaders in their fields. They all have inspiring stories to tell, and I share them with you every week. 
So if you're enjoying these episodes, please hit subscribe and join me for more stories about the moments before it happened. For those of us who don't know or not at the ground level that you are, walk us through a planting and what it is that you look at and why that is so important to understanding for the rest of us. Like how much carbon do trees and soils actually store? So carbon is important and it's the easiest metric for how to impact climate change. But the truth is that's not really the real reason why we're doing this. We're doing this to restore ecosystems of which climate is a part. So how much carbon do trees sequester? For a tropical forest, you could say a new forest on average sequesters like 20 tons of CO2 every year per hectare. Drier areas sequester less carbon. It takes a long time for forests to grow. Some hit maturity after 150 years, some hit maturity after 10 years. It's a very regional issue. We care about a few things when planting new forests, biodiversity, planting many, many different kinds of trees. We care about subsurface ecology, mycorrhizal fungi and nematodes and bacteria. These are all very critical parts of an ecosystem. There's more life under the surface than there is above. And California, where we live, has a lot of challenges, right, with the droughts and the fires and are the natural fires versus controlled burns, which is also often done, is that causing more damage or is it beneficial for us to have these natural fires that we seem to have every year and continue to have? There has been traditional controlled, relatively controlled fires for tens of thousands of years in this ecosystem where there has been much lower canopy density in most places where the number of trees was much more open, where native grasses rather than European grasses were predominant throughout the ecosystem. So many things have changed in the last few hundred years. I don't think we know what a balanced ecosystem in California looks like anymore or what is possible. We need all of traditional wisdom and new knowledge to come together to answer this question. Water is a big deal with cities and agriculture using a lot of water for good reasons. People to live and be comfortable and grow food. All these are good reasons. And it has totally destabilized state level ecosystems. In California, water cycles are broken and we see weird things happen. I was on a water pilgrimage. It's called Walking Water. It took place over three years, basically through the aqueduct to LA. And Owens Lake used to be a huge lake, and now it's a dry lake bed, and it's one of the largest single point pollutant sources of dust on the planet. And there's this pumpback station where the Owens River, it's pumped back to the origin of the river. So it looks like a river, but the water doesn't go anywhere. It just stays there. And it's so that all the rest of the water can be taken to LA. And it's weird. It's uncanny and disturbing to see that. And no one ever sees it. But it's, to me, a sign that the way we treat water is broken. And we don't understand what we need to do with it. We're not using it efficiently. And we're not using it with respect. And we are taking it from that land, the Owens Valley. It used to be known as Paihunadu, the place where water flows. And that's not the case anymore. The water is directed into a pipeline and it goes through a desert into a city. And there's less water for everyone because we do that. So instead of treating water as a natural resource, it's 
an afterthought? I would say the word natural resource conveys with it that nature is primarily about human utility. And that is not the case. A friend of ours, John Leo, he says something like, there are no ecosystem services. There are just ecosystems. And this is a radical view, which means that nature has a right to exist for its own sake. And that is the deeper motivation for why we are building an organization to restore nature, to address climate change, to restore human livelihoods, to restore indigenous land agency, because relationship with the rest of nature isn't working the way that it used to. And it's not beautiful in the way that it can be again. Has the lobbying and the government policies and things, are those equally as broken as the way we've treated things? I would think that your organization will have a lot of impact on the future. Are you currently working on lobbying and taking things to the government level? Is that part of your role as well? It's not so much right now. We're focused on private solutions because they operate quickly and it will increasingly become part of what is necessary. Policy is very powerful. Government is very powerful. To be able to influence the decisions of billions of people across the planet is what is needed. So yes, it'll have to be part of what we work on. And at some point, it'll become more and more necessary. Yeah, it's bureaucracy isn't as friendly as a sacred mission, right? So are there any projects that, when you look at this global things that you're doing, are there any particular project you say, no, this is like on the list. It's not currently a project, but something you just say, I got to fix it, or at least attempt to fix it? I would love to see continental scale shifts in dry land ecosystems. Think of the Western United States or most of Australia, or Southwest Europe, the Sahara that is sort of slowly increasing in size throughout Africa. These are ecosystems that with the proper water restoration, simple, very low tech, low cost interventions would transform the whole place. A friend of mine, his name is Rajendra Singh, he did this. For the last 40 years, he's been organizing hundreds of thousands of people throughout Rajasthan and other parts of India to do small water cycle interventions, building check dams, swales, shallow injection wells, planting trees, and has restored rivers that are now essential waterways for tens of millions of people. So we know it can be done. We just have to go do it. How do we get this type of conversation into the classroom and put it in STEM education for the sake of future scientists and environmentalists. We have a lovely man. His name is Aaron Hirsch. He's the executive director of the Earthshot Institute and has done a lot of this work in the past, engaging students, engaging amateurs, engaging citizen scientists in the process of doing science in climate action. Go talk to him and join the Earthshot Institute Slack channel. And whether you're a teacher or policymaker, let's work together to fix this. So what is your real hope for the future? If looking 20 years from now and you look back and say, the mission that you set out to do, what would be that holy grail of a personal fulfillment and achievement that you're hoping to look back on? Personal achievement and fulfillment is one thing. Another is what does the planet look like and what incentive structures are guiding the direction of human civilization. It would be awesome if there was more forests and more restored ecosystems every year where half or more of the planet is seen as sacred territories where humans have only sort of traditional uses, but not industrial uses. 
where every year there are more and more species of every kind flourishing, where people's needs are met much more completely by regenerative food systems, where the frailty, the fragility of modern food systems and transportation systems, like COVID was a little shock and we have the potential to see big shocks. And I think that that will probably happen over the coming decades. So resilience is a word that's thrown around a lot. And what it means is that human lives and humans can thrive and ecosystems can thrive independent of macro factors. So let's build resilient systems. Most of our guests inspire us to look at the world differently from others. The ground we walk on and the air we breathe. Protecting the earth is all of our responsibility. And we can all learn so much from the indigenous people who came before us and people like Troy who are working to do just that. So now it's your turn. Check out the show notes for more information on what Earthshot is doing and how you too can become a steward of the earth. Thank you for listening. Follow Before It Happened on Instagram and Twitter. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and share the show wherever you listen to podcasts. Before It Happened is produced by me, Donna Laughlin, along with Studio Pod Media. The executive producer is Katie Sunku Wood. And all episodes are written and developed by Susanna Camp with additional editing and music provided by Noda Lab.